Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is September the 6th, 2018. This is episode 2286 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday. It is time for a listener call show. This is where you pick up your phone and you call 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Or you can use the speak pipe. To use the speak pipe, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on contact. And there you'll see a button that says speak pipe. You can just mash that button and tell me what you want to tell me and hit send. And it'll send that message to me through the magic of the interwebs. No matter how you do it, you know how to do it, right? If you listen before you do, you make your point or you ask your question immediately. And then give me your details. You'll be more likely to get on the show that way. Call from a quiet area. If you're on a cell phone, look at the bars on it. If it's not two... Move around and you find some bars. If you call me with your uh, windows down in your car doing 80 miles an hour down the road or running a weed eater or a chainsaw, I'm just going to delete your call because I can't hear you and nobody wants to hear those uh, awful background noises. So I understand some of you guys are ducking out of work or something and there might be some office machinery or something back. That's fine, but, but do try to find a relatively quiet area with good signal. Follow the rules and you're very likely to get on the air. Call volume is not huge uh, recently. I get a... But a few more that I can use, but most of the calls are getting on the air. If you've always wanted to be on the air, now is the time to do it, 866-65-THINK. And that'll be for next week's show, because this week's show is already ready to go already, and we know what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to have a segment. I'm not even going to explain what it really is about until you hear the caller, but it's going to, I'm calling it Techno Anarchy, Truth in Media, and Conspiracy Trolls. I also have a, a phone call. Jack is a jerk phone call, and this is a record. I'm a jerk three times in one phone call, all in good ways, though, by the way. Uh, we had a recent show we did uh, with James from Survival Punk, uh, blog and podcast, on tiny houses and lifestyle freedom. I have someone calling in, did it a little bit differently, but it's the same aspect. And I want to talk a little bit more about lifestyle freedom and living life on your terms versus the terms that are dictated to you by others, by life, by companies, etc. Uh, during that call. I got to ask me about how to run a business selling guns when you don't want to sell guns to strangers. We're going to talk about a little bit of reality check there and what this person can do to follow their passion without violating their principles if their principles actually prevent them from doing this. Uh, we have a question on building priorities, passive solar and basements with your new home builds. Uh, I have a question on evaluating roadkill for human consumption. And I have... Uh, Jason from PA, who's always got great stuff for us, calling in on making the switch to wireless, as in like cell phone technology, for your internet services at your home, kind of keying off of this 5G thing we've talked about a lot recently. we got all that for you and more in just a moment. Before we dig into it, let's get a little historical perspective. I love doing some level of history segment, and we'll just mute that. Freaking history.com website has these autoplays on it. That's what that was, if you heard that at all. Uh, but anyway, uh, 1915 is when we're going back, uh, September 6, 1915. The first tank was produced, like as in battle tanks, was produced. On this day in 1915, a prototype tank named Little Willie rolls off the assembly line in England. Little Willie was far from an overnight success. It weighed only 14 tons, got stuck in trenches, crawled over rough terrain at only two miles an hour, 
However, improvements were made to the original prototype and eventually transformed military battlefields. The first tank prototype, Little Willie, was unveiled in September 1915. Following its underwhelming performance, it was slow, became overheated, and couldn't cross a trench. A second prototype, known as Big Willie, was produced. By 1916, this armored vehicle was deemed ready for battle. It made its debut on the first Battle of Somme near Crochet, France, uh, on September 15th of that year, known as the Mark I. This first battle of tanks, or first batch of tanks, was hot, noisy, and unwieldy, suffered mechanical malfunctions on the battlefield. Nevertheless, people realized the tank's potential. Further design improvements were made. At the Battle of Cambrai on November 1917, 400 Mark IVs proved much more successful than Mark I, capturing 8,000 enemy troops and 100 guns. Tanks rapidly became an important military weapon. During World War II, they played a prominent role across numerous battlefields. More recently, tanks have been used as an essential uh, for desert combat during conflicts in the Persian Gulf. This actually makes me want to point out the evolution and how quickly a technology that is considered to be uh, the best becomes useless or um, just basically uh, outdated, right? What's the word I'm looking for? Every once in a while I have a word that just tries to escape me, obsolete. And even if the same thing is there, it has to be a very different version of it, so... I would point out that during World War II, we built tens of thousands of tanks, and so did the Germans. During the Cold War, the United States had produced tens of thousands of tanks, and so did the Russians. Uh, and a lot of these Russian tanks, these uh, T-62s and T-72 tanks, ended up in places like Iraq when the Soviets upgraded their capability. And today, the United States only has about 1,600 battle tanks, M1 Abrams primarily. Uh, and fighter jets, we only have about 1,800 fighter jets right now. We have fixed like 5,000 fixed-wing aircraft, but true fighter jets, we have about 1,840 of them. We have about 162 bombers. Um, and that's because of the fighter jets, the bombers, the tanks. We have about 10 true aircraft carriers, 19 ships in the Navy you could call aircraft carriers. We used to have a lot more of those. These, these new... Weapons obsoleted the old ones. You know what made the tanks not very successful really, really quick in World War One when they were going two miles an hour? They took those big old artillery guns and they just pointed them line of sight and poof, gone tank. Pretty easy to hit when it's at close range where it actually starts to get to where it can do some damage. But then they upgraded the t they made them faster, more agile, gave them bigger guns, and they became a primary unit of infantry combat. And When I look at and hear our politicians talking about defense today, I think, well, that's all good and well, but I wonder if we're really focusing on what really is the next evolution in battle. You know, if you only have 1,800 fighters and you lose half of them, where are you at? And in World War II, we had what we called fighter aircraft, and they were planes with machine guns, and we would train a guy to fly them in you know, a couple months. It takes a lot to become a, a naval or air force aviator today or an army helicopter pilot for an attack helicopter like the Apache. I mean, we don't have the numbers. We have much more superior technology, much smaller numbers. If something's developed that can take them out, like, let's say, electronic systems and things like that, or take away their ability to navigate with GPS or radar or night vision. And I think that the battles in the future 
are going to look a lot different than the past, and they won't be the battles of a future that we envisioned. They won't be two nations lobbing nuclear weapons at each other because we know how that's going to end up, and it doesn't work out for anybody. And I think we live in a place right now where humanity is going to make a decision. We're either going to kill less people or going to kill a whole lot more. And I don't know what decision we're going to make as, as, a, as a global uh, people yet. And if the word global people or global community bothers you because it makes you think of the United Nations or whatever, I think you need to reevaluate that because in the end, when we start talking about mass-scale elimination of life, we got one big round-ass rock that we all sit on and float around the sun. And it, the, the sooner we figure that out, the sooner we might figure out how to at least reasonably coexist. Because the levels of technology being developed by the top nations in the world, the biggest nations, the ones with the most money, are pretty horrifying including the weaponry that they can point at their own people in the mass surveillance state. It's just all something to think about, because what started is a little bitty, basically, tractor that went two miles an hour and got stuck in a ditch became one of the most awesome battle implements that ever existed. So when we talk about things like 5G technology, what that might that do to the surveillance state, just as one example? Just my thoughts. But again, on this day in history, 1915, first battle tank uh, was produced. It took about a year before they tried to use one actually on a battlefield. And again, by World War II, it was a, thanks to General Patton in a, a lot of ways, a, a, a prominent tool used by the Allies in the liberation of the European continent. All right, so let's move on and uh, get stuck right into it. This first call, and I kind of brought up the surveillance state and all because this is going to give me an opportunity to show you that just because I bring that up doesn't mean that I'm willing to go down every conspiracy rabbit hole that comes up. And I want to point out before you hear this caller, I think this man is sincere, and I don't know 100% that he's wrong in where he ends up. And I think we agree on a lot more than we disagree with, but... There's some stuff here that I'm not comfortable recommending that you put any stock in, and, and I'm going to, well, you'll see when I respond to it. And with that, let's go ahead and hear from our first caller today. Hey, Jack, David from Indiana, long-time listener and MSB member. You mentioned in your show about anarchy how technology might be on our side in this struggle, and you couldn't be more correct. The Internet has given us an alternative to the banking system with crypto. You were one of the first to hail crypto movement as revolutionary. The Internet has allowed us an alternative to learning about the truth about our world also. The truth found somewhere other than the corporate-controlled mainstream media. The truth through podcasts like yours or through sources like QAnon posts. If you haven't already found Q, I would ask that you please research it and discuss it with your audience if you think it's appropriate. Their main motto is, where we go one, we go all. And this is directly in line with your warning us that their goal is to divide us by focusing on right versus left or black versus white. We'll never progress towards volunteerism or anarchy unless we can stand together. If you agree with Q's approach, please use your platform to reach your hundreds of thousands of listeners. Do it like you did with the market crash of 07 and 08 and like you did with Bitcoin. You're on the right side of history, Jack. Don't stop now. Thanks for all you do. Okay, look, I appreciate the kind words, and I'm not going to just crap all over this QAnon person thing, entity, idea, uh, as being complete nonsensical crap, 
but my gut is that it is. I'll be honest. I did not have the time to do deep research into this thing. Uh, I did a, a, a cursory amount of research into what's come out of this and where it's from. And uh, QAnon is a person, entity, thing, allegedly American, that's blowing the cover off all these vast conspiracies, from what I can see, from what I've read so far, uh, that's part of the 4chan forums. I don't want to go ad hominem here. All right, and I'm going to talk to some of the other points you brought up that are valid in a minute. But I almost didn't play this because, from what I can see anyway, I don't really want to lend any credibility to this thing at all. I don't want to, period. But I'm also an open-minded person, so if someone out there, without going batshit crazy on me, can tell me why I should pay attention to this and believe there's any validity in it after what I'm about to say, please get in touch with me, and I'll listen. And I believe you can be a completely sincere person that means well and, and believes in what you're talking about and be misled by this stuff as well, which is why it's done. So let's talk a little about 4chan and some of the things that have come out of 4chan. There is this belief among social justice warrior type leftist snowflakes that when you see somebody giving the okay sign, so you got your thumb and your forefinger together like a circle, and then you got your three fingers sticking up. Since those three fingers sticking up look like a W, and apparently that little circle looks like a P, it means white power. And this has actually become a thing where people are actually getting upset about it, and then all of a sudden people are going out and finding pictures of celebrities and police officers and politicians saying okay and okay sign is proof that they were white supremacists, including black people that apparently are white supremacists, like... Oh, I don't know, Buckwheat from uh, the the character, the Buckwheat character uh, from Saturday Night Live, um, played by Eddie Murphy, was apparently also white power signaling back in the, the. And then when it came out that no, that's not what it is. What they said, well, it does mean that now, and it's not okay to say okay anymore. And it turned out it all came from the 4chan forums, and these are people over there that actually like get together and figure out what bullshit rumor can we start and see if we can make people believe it. And then they do it, and they, they're actually pretty effective at getting it done. And a bunch of the urban legend bullshit that's come out in the last year or two has come right out of 4chan. I don't know about 4chan much more than what I just said. I don't know if there's legitimate discussions going on there, and this is one subgroup. It's like some big, giant, unmoderated forum. And I don't know that maybe this QAnon person might not be some, on at least some level, valid. But it doesn't look like it. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about techno-anarchy, which is what you're calling in about, and, and what anarchy really is versus this belief that anybody that's against them is one of us. Because that us and them thinking is the last thing I want. When I say they, I'm talking about the people in power, but if you actually think that there's like a place somewhere, it's like New World Order headquarters where the Illuminati meet, that are, you know, like 20 guys control, that's not how this works. Government itself, the state itself is power. It's force. It is the threat of violence. That's what it is. And the people that are there are just people. And they all have their own agenda and things that they want. And conspiracy, which is simply two people working together to get something to happen without telling everybody else about it, okay, people will conspire when you put them in that situation. And when you then open the door to things like lobbyists and giant corporations can go in with a lobbyist 
hand a congressman or a senator a proposed piece of legislation that the guy never even reads, make a giant campaign to his super PAC, and he introduces it as potential law, you have a whole different type of conspiracy, a whole different type of they. But they are all fighting with each other as well, and they all have their agendas as well, and they're not all bad people that just hate us. All of them think... Well, most of them think they're doing the best they can in the situation that they're in, and it creates an us and they. And when we look at it as like it's the Illuminati, it's Skull and Bones, it's any of this crap, I'm sorry, we're going to go down a rabbit hole into nothingness that no good can come from. And when I start seeing stuff like this, and it seems like the QAnon is up in the with the pizza gate, and here's a picture of some piece of art on a pizza place in Washington, and that proves that all the people that went there are pedophiles, and all the people in Congress are pedophiles. I mean, it's just stupid. And you really got to step back from stuff like that and try to get any bit of factual checking that doesn't come from the very source that you're believing in the first place. And that's, I think, one of the biggest problems people have. And I don't care if it's mainstream media. I don't care if it's alternative media. I don't care if it's conspiracy websites. If all your information on something comes from the same source, you do not have valid confirmation that what you're looking at is in any way true or based in any way on fact. I see it every day on Facebook. And the right is now worse than the left with fake bullshit and spreading fake bullshit. And I'll see something posted. I saw a thing posted today. Why didn't the media report that Donald Trump donated his salary of $400,000 for the quarter or whatever in August to rebuilding military cemeteries? Well, in 37 seconds, to be exact, I was able to find out because that's not what he did. Now, it actually turned, now, where did I end up? I ended up on a website that gets ad hominem attacked all the time. Snopes. They're run by leftists. It's two leftists in their cat. That's Completely true, it, that's, but that's an ad hominem attack. That doesn't refute the information presented. And this is the logical way. you got to start thinking if you're going to get where you're, this guy that called in. If you want to get where I talk about getting to, where people use critical decision-making and the, an assembly of fact and logical argument to hash out differences and actually debate the core issue rather than this person they don't like, then you got to start doing this. You can't just go, well, that source isn't good. Why? Because it says you're wrong? So I, I see this, and, and the guy was actually, for a change, pretty agreeable. When I, you know, I don't like Snopes, but, oh, well, I kind of respect you. And I, well, it, it doesn't matter if you like Snopes. When you went to Snopes, here's what it said. Donald Trump donated the shit out of his salary to all these different things. Just happens that none of them are rebuilding veterans cemeteries. Not a one. So even see, there was even truth in that. Donald Trump is donating his salary. I think it's a backhanded form of virtue signaling myself. Doesn't need it. You know? Doesn't affect him one way or another to, to, to do it. But I mean it's, I guess it's better than keeping it, you know. Makes me think of a meme I saw one time when, when it was uh, like three guys pushing a pickup truck and one guy was standing in the bed pushing the cab of the truck while the others were pushing the truck itself. And it said when government workers claim they pay taxes too. So yeah, I, you know I, I can I can get that. It's a political move though. But the man is donating and has donated millions of dollars to various charities. But the claim was inaccurate. 
But the immediate response, even from a fairly agreeable person, was, well, I don't like Snopes. Well, that's ad hominem. That's The argument is invalid because of the source. Considering the source and invalidating the argument due to the source alone are different things. That's why I'm saying this QAnon, I'd have to see something presented that was even remotely valid enough to fact search to then say, this is a, a phony source you can't count on. My gut is I wouldn't put one-tenth of one percent into anything that comes out of 4chan, period. Because the track record is abysmal. However, if you can point it to an argument that they've made that's valid, I'll research it and say that's valid. And this is how you actually get where you're incentivizing that we want to get to. Anarchy is not a system of government. Understand that. It is not a system of government. It is not the absence of a system of government. It is neither one. It is a philosophical belief simply summed up as hurting people and taking their stuff is wrong always. That's the whole thing. There's a lot of nuances that we can get into, but in the end, that's the flaw. If you believe that hurting people when they're not doing anything to hurt anybody else and taking things from people that they've rightfully acquired without their permission through the use of force is wrong, then morally you are an anarchist. And then you have to decide, as an anarchist, how do I fit in a world full of statism, where the entire state apparatus constantly hurts people and takes their stuff. It doesn't mean you expect everybody else to change. It means you set an example, and you do not look to overturn the state. You do not look to abolish the state. The goal of anarchism is the obsolescence, the obsolescence of the state. To take an individual system that the state has a monopoly on and obsolete the monopoly. Cryptocurrency obsoletes the state's monopoly on money. It doesn't get rid of the state's money. It obsoletes the monopoly. And the more things you can create as parallel systems that people can choose outside of the state, the less need there is of the state and the less power the state has. And that can only be done by putting out something that actually works better than the state's solution in spite of the fact that they have every advantage. And that's why technology is the way forward with anarchy. And you're correct in that the sharing of information and the dissemination of information is critical to the obsolescence of the state in many and various forms. Because it is misinformation the state uses to hold on to power. But when the information coming from an alternative source, an anonymous source, whatever, is not true, then we should be the first to point that out. And even if it matches our confirmation bias, our perception bias, our agenda, and what we want, when it's not true, for the love of God, we need to be the first ones that stand up and say, that is not true. Even if you if you you know if you're an anarchist, you probably don't only really side with the Democrats or the Republicans, but you probably have a natural inclination to be a little bit more towards one. And then, but then you need to be calling that side out as quickly as the other side when they're full of shit, when they're wrong, when they're lying. And you do it with fact and logic and reason, and expect this response. When you do it, fact, logic, and reason. You will get either a person that re-examines what you've said 
and concedes at least one little point. Yeah, well, maybe I didn't really think about it that way or something. But you'll get some level of engagement or you will get anger. And you won't get, like, like write you off anger. Like, you're just a freaking nut job. Go F yourself. You'll get, like, anger, anger. Because that that has now hit them in a place where they cannot refute it with logic and reason and fact themselves. And if they actually heard it, now it's like, damn it, I don't like this, so they become angry at the messenger. That's okay. You walk away. That seed's planted. That seed's planted. When you get your nutjob conspiracy theorists, they forgot about you a minute before they hit enter. Or a minute before they, they made the statement if you're talking face-to-face. -face. Because you haven't brought fact, reason, logic. You haven't brought that to the table. And these things, that, 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 that I, I've seen it over and over with these conspiracy-based things. All the information is their information. It's not cited to anywhere else, and you can't verify it. They make a claim, and you say, okay, let's forget their conclusion. This claim has been made that this thing happened this way. And you go to try to confirm it. And not only can you not confirm that it did happen, you can actually confirm that it never happened. Or it did not happen that way. Or it did not happen when they say it did. That it's completely wrong. And you can only look at something long enough where you, you, you pull apart enough of those pieces and you go, no, I cannot trust the source. So unless I get this story later from another source, I, it, it's not valid to me anymore. And that's where I think anything out of 4chan seems like it is to me right now. Am I wrong? I don't know. Prove me wrong. Show me a validatable thing that this guy's done that's not, you know, some pizza rape story or something like that. And, you know, I, I, I consider looking at it. But otherwise, the way to go forward with this is not to say we can't trust anything the mainstream media says. What are they saying that's true, and what are they saying it's false? And what are they leaving out? And that's the main thing. Most of the stuff that the mainstream media does report is factual. That doesn't mean it's accurate. Factual could be that I said that um, somebody ran down the road naked yesterday. But it, it, it's completely inaccurate if I don't put it in an accurate context. Did that person run down the road naked because somebody robbed them, took all their clothes, pointed a gun at them, said, you better run down the street? Or did they just streak? And how was it connected to the other thing that I said? Like, well, Donald Trump got out of his car and somebody ran down the road naked. Did that happen? Donald Trump was in Washington, D.C., and this guy was in Florida. And a lot of stuff, and I'm going a little bit extreme to make the point, but a lot of stuff in our world is done that way in the media today. So it's up to you to dig through it. But if you can only find one source on something, that's basic journalism, which I wish journalists would start doing again. But just because somebody is alternative media, just because somebody says they're against them, whoever the hell they are, just because somebody says they're an anarchist, just because somebody says they're a libertarian, just because somebody says they're for freedom or liberty, just because somebody says they're a conservative, just because somebody says they're a liberal, doesn't mean that the information that they're giving you is valid. It really doesn't. Some of these sources of information, I would tell you you're better off reading through the satire of things like the Onion and Babylon Bee and using that satire to garner truth than to take this information presented as truth as though it's in any way factual at all. 
Because at least Babylon B and the Onion and other sites like that know they're doing satirical things. They know they're doing things that are untrue. They, they're not fake news. Babylon B is not a fake news site. A fake news website purports to be telling you the truth and alters it or screws it up or flat out lies. A site like Babylon B is satirical. They, there's, if you believe what's on that site, you're really not paying attention. I mean, they're pretty evident about what they're doing, okay? Anyway, let's go on and take another one. I spent a lot of time on that, but I think this is like one of the most critical things you can do for yourself. When you see somebody make a claim on Facebook, spent before you hit share, or Twitter, or wherever, before you hit share, take 13 seconds, Google it. And if you find the first result is Snopes, don't go, well, that must be, be a, because they're liberals and, and socialists. And no, read it. Because the one thing I'll say about Snopes, I'm sure I would not get along well with the people that run it. When they put a thing up, 90% of the ones I've run, this is where this happened. Here's a source. Here's the original image. Here's the date this occurred. Here's a link to the newspaper article. When you cite sources, I'm telling you, then you've got something legitimate. You're going to send me, I know some of you right now, you're so stupid, Jack, and you don't know because I found out where Snopes lied and they did this, and you're going to send me one or two stories they got wrong. Which, by the way, when it was pointed out that they were wrong, they said, yeah, we got it wrong, we're humans. We're humans. So that, don't bother. Just Now that you've done that, you, I've just mocked you, just delete that, don't send it to me because I'm not going to read it. I already know about those couple. I do. I do, and if you go try to find them, They're not there anymore. But that's because you're so stupid and they stop. Let's go on. Let's do something different. I'm done. Hey, Jack. This is Tyler in Ohio. Uh, I got three Jack here jerk. So first one, uh, when my little guy was born eight weeks early, when we got him out of the hospital, we had a flat tire. Um, my wife started to cry. I told her no worries, popped a plug in, and then pressured it up with my portable uh, battery pack that also has an air compressor. Second one, um, my brother had uh, a dead battery and at the Walmart parking lot, drove over there. Um, he had gotten a new battery, but it was the wrong size. So I was able to um, jump his old battery uh, and with my portable power pack as well. Third one, uh, we had a water leak at our uh, outside of our house, and we were able to Uh, get that all squared away and pay the contractor because of our emergency fund. Uh, so those are th uh, three where I'm saying, Jack, you're a jerk. Have a great day. Well, that's a, that's a good call to get me off being all worked up over all this fake crap and people just buying into anything that sounds like it matches what you're looking for. Um, guys, the stuff we teach here works. You know, and just throw it back a little bit to that last segment without getting mad again. Um, If if the way I tell you to to protect yourself against flat tire works, the way I tell you to protect yourself against misinformation probably works too. Because it's actually all done the same way. You take a logical viewpoint. So what's the number one way that you're going to get a flat tire on the road? Well, there's two. You're either going to get a puncture or a slice. You get a slice, the only thing you do is change the tire. So that leaves you with, okay, I need to make sure that I have all the stuff I need to change my tire if I get a slice in my tire. The other one is I'll get a puncture. If I get a puncture, can I fix that? Yes. How do I do that with a plug kit? What do I need after I put a plug in it? Way to get air back in the car. Now I have a plug kit and an air compressor of some sort. 
even if it's not a great air compressor, even if it's only going to air the tire up to half the pressure it should have, as long as it's going to get me off the rim and I can drive down the road and find a gas station, throw a dollar's worth of quarters in there that I should have in my little container in my car because I might need it someday, then I'm good. Then I'm good. See, it's the same, and that's I wanted to bring that out because that's how we do everything here. I mean, people look at all of the, the, the diversity in what we do and think that, man, you got to know so many things. No, you got to know a logical analysis of a situation with some level of ability to have forethought and some level of prognostication about what could go wrong. How do you put a food storage program together? Well, you buy food all the time. And since you buy food all the time and some of that food is shelf-stable, buy more of that food and start rotating it just like they do at the grocery store. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Then start figuring out ways to augment that so that we can go, let's say, a month without having to go buy food and be okay. Now we get through 90% of what will ever go wrong, including I lost my job, so at least we're going to eat for a month while I find a new job. You go ahead and pick anything that we talk about, how to grow a vegetable, Right? How to how to be secure and safe if your car breaks down beyond a broken you know a flat tire where you end up stuck in a snowstorm and you got to keep it. you no matter what it is it's that simple process it's an analysis based on the facts and based on probability that leads to a conclusion that tells you what to do or what to think or what to believe. And if that makes me a jerk, I'm a happy jerk. Thanks for the call. By the way, somebody called in with another Jack you're a jerk call this week. Caller, you will be on next week. I didn't think it was, I thought it'd be good to just kind of keep them one a week, but I don't know if we get a bunch of them. Do you want to call me with a Jack, you're a jerk call? I'd love to hear it. They make my day when I get these calls. Um, if you would have told me 15 years ago that one day, Jack, you, the thing you're going to look forward most to is people calling you or emailing you and telling you that you're a jerk, I would have thought you were crazy. Just shows that we can all be wrong. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, I thought this was a really great thought-provoking call as well, this one coming up. Hi, Jack. This is Matt with the Low Cash Homestead. Um, so I was listening to your show with James about the tiny houses. And part of that, when he was describing why, the whys of it, really resonated a lot with me because that is the exact reason that we made the lifestyle changes that we made and set up the low cash homestead. Uh, obviously, I didn't start building a website till about a year ago, but there was so much to do as far as property goes. But the whole point of him saying, I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, have the freedom to do this and the freedom to do that. And he's absolutely right. We bought our acreage and the house on it and everything in cash. This transition cost us a quarter million dollars to do. It was everything we had. But, yeah, I have more free time to pursue the things that I want to do. I want to grow my food. I have more time for that. I don't want to spend more time with my family. I have more time for that. So that really resonated a lot with me. As far as the tiny houses go, it was interesting to listen to. I do have a skilled trades background. So, you know, building a tiny house is pretty much building anything, I guess. I haven't done it, but I have some plans to do it. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling because it's late, but I really enjoyed the show. It really resonated with me, and his reasons are exactly my reasons that in 2014 we started this whole thing. Thank you very much. 
So for those who maybe didn't catch the show with James, James built a, uh, a, a, a tiny house on a shed conversion platform. So they got basically a shed built by an Amish uh, shed builder, uh, and then they transported that to a location, put it on a piece of property that he's actually kind of, uh, You know, friend sharing. This is his friend's property. He has lots of room. Hey, you want to put your cabin back there? I don't care. So he's he's living for next to nothing now. And he's actually got uh, a, a wife and a kid living in this about 240-square-foot shed. And they're trying to figure out how to do some things for more accommodation now, more than it's, it's more than just him. And James worked at a, a major corporation, got a management job, saved up some money, and then bailed out of that and went and tried to, basically the way he put it, I wanted to know how to live like a broke-ass redneck since broke-ass rednecks live the way that I want to live, but I wanted to be a little bit better off than they were. And, and so that was done on a, a fairly low budget, under $50,000, and then this gentleman here put a quarter million dollars in um, of their hard-earned money to have a, a paid-for piece of property. What's the commonality? The commonality is no debt. No, what the commonality is, is a very low cost to maintain the lifestyle. That's that's the commonality. I have some debt. I have debt on my home. I consider the cost of my home, when I look at the mortgage portion of it, to be insignificant for what I get in return for it. I would rather it's not there, but... I also would rather have the capital today so that I have the opportunity to invest that capital. Otherwise, when I have a mortgage, it's like 2.8%. So it's about building a resilient lifestyle so that you can service whatever the expenses, whether the expenses are the form of debt or the entertainment that you want in your life, Uh, or uh, the vehicle you want, whatever it is, you want to have it set up so that there is no struggle in meeting those obligations. It's amazing what happens when you do that. When you balance your life to where not just the income you have today, but the income that you're always capable of making one way or another. If you balance that so that the expense side is significantly less Something happens that, that takes away what I believe is the number one killer in the world today. Stress. And you make, you, you make poor decisions under stress. You make much better decisions when you're not under stress. I mean, that's why most, most of what military training is, is stressing you until you can execute your training under stress. That, that's what most military training amounts to. I'll put you with, in whatever stress I can... And then say, execute the training I gave you. Execute the training I gave you. Which is more stress, right? You did it wrong, do it again. You did it wrong, do it again. When I went through combat lifesaver training, when we got evaluated at the end, we went to different stations, and there were casualties. And there'd be two instructors there. The one instructor would give you any information you couldn't actually get because the guy wasn't really shot in the chest, and he didn't actually have a sucking chest wound, for example, for one thing. So when you did what you were supposed to do based on how they kind of like mocked this guy up with some fake blood and stuff, the, the, the one instructor was kind of the good angel, the little angel on your right shoulder, right, that would say, uh, yeah, you, you, hear, you, know, you hear air moving out of the chest or you didn't get a pulse or whatever it is. So all he gave you was the feedback you couldn't legitimately get from the person or the mannequin at the station. And other than that, he was irrelevant. The other one would say, 
You're doing it wrong. You're killing him. Even when you were doing it right. Let him go. He's dead. He's not going to make it. He's not worth it. Go on to the next one. You're making a mistake. You're wasting time. The next guy's going to die. You've got to cut bait and run on this one. Stuff like that, okay? There was a chance he was telling you the truth. And there was a chance he was telling you a lie. And you had to make a decision based on the information you had and the training you had under that stress as to what to do as though he wasn't there. That's what military training is. Now, it's stress serves a purpose. And in that, it serves the purpose of being prepared for when stress is unavoidable. Stress serves a purpose because stress makes us move. We respond to it. We seek to escape stress. So if we're in a place that we shouldn't be in, because we're really cold, the cold starts to stress us. It's just not uncomfortable. We begin to be stressed by being cold. If you're hungry and you don't eat for long enough, you become stressed by being hungry. And both of those cause you to find warmth or go find food. So stress has a purpose. But stress is supposed to be a motivational thing. It's not supposed to be unavoidable and in the background at all times. And we live in a world today where because of our lifestyles, because of the, the, the debt prison that we willingly put ourselves into, and because of the false belief in commitments that don't even exist, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to go to school, I have to go to college, I have to do this, I have to take this loan out, I have to provide this for my... You know, my son has to be in this sports activity this time now, even though it's a terrible decision to do because you, you just lost a job, you don't have the money. You can give up T-ball for a month or a year. It's going to be okay. Take him out and play with him in the backyard. You don't have a job. He's going to value the time with you more than wearing some stupid uniform that they're paying the MLB for so that they can use the freaking name Orioles or whatever and take the stress out. And that is the key to lifestyle design. Designing stress out of the equation. And one of the primary ways we do that is by designing out Financial shortfalls. When we go from not having a financial shortfall, we can only be two places. Balanced, okay, or we're on the windfall side. Either we have as much coming in as is going out and we never go over that, so we never have a negative, not a good place to be. Because it takes one thing to go wrong and throw that off balance. Or we're in a position where here's everything i got to pay for this month, here's the income, wherever it comes from that I have, And here's all the extra money that I have to do whatever I want with. Let's put it in a box. Let's stick it over there. Well, I don't worry about it right now. I don't need it. I got everything I want to eat. And then next month, holy crap, look, there's more of this stuff. Let's stick this over here. And next thing you know what happens? You're making a jack or jerk call. You're making a jack or jerk post like the one I saw on Facebook this week. It's awesome. And it all comes from that basic lifestyle design. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Let's take another call. Jack, Jared from Idaho here. I'm a Type 7 FFL, which means I'm a licensed firearms manufacturer by the ATF. And I'm in a bit of a quandary here. I've had my license for a little over three years. And I don't know how to make money with the business because I don't like selling guns to people I don't know. Any information you have on this or ideas would be fantastic. Thank you. Jerry, before I answer your question, I'll just say the part of it that you had me remove and not put on the air, I appreciate it. Um, I, I don't need any assistance with that right now. Um, and otherwise, let's talk about this. You kind of have a situation here that, that i got to tell you, 
you're not going to be a a successful gun salesman and only sell guns to people you know. So you either have to come up with a business that involves firearms that doesn't require you to do that, or you got to do something else. And I know that's probably not the answer that you you wanted to hear, but it's it's the truth. It's it's the absolute truth. Like. And, and I would say you got to step back from this a minute and understand this. There's nothing you can do that doesn't have some risk if it's meaningful where you might not have helped somebody that might hurt somebody. Let's say that you, you, you gave up and said, I'm going to go down to Home Depot and get a job. And, and the guy, and you, you say, okay, I'm going to do that. No, no, I'm not hurting nobody there. Hey, what do you know? I don't have tools. And they say, we're going to put you in a tool department. And somebody walks in one day and goes, I'm looking for like, The best swinging hammer you got. Oh, this one right here. It's 18 ounces and whatever, you know, and it's got a good... Oh, I mean, God buys that and goes out and bashes his brother's head in with it. Are you going to be guilty over that? Is it your fault? I mean, do you believe that people have a right to buy a gun in this country? You probably do, or you wouldn't have the license that you do to sell them. And, and I, I can't help but wonder if maybe seeing some of the things, the horrible things that have happened over the last few years with people, you know, shooting up a school or something. And you just sit there and go, man, if I ever sold a gun to somebody and that happened, I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Well, if you've got a job as a car salesman, you sold a guy a car and he drove it through his, his ex-wife's house. I mean, however, I, I, I am a realist and I do understand that the potential to do harm with a gun and the fact that a person that wanted something to do harm with would be more likely to go get a gun than a car to do it, even though the car can actually be a lot more dangerous and do a lot more damage, um, it is there. And that guns are designed, no matter what anybody says, the purpose of a gun is to kill. That's what guns were invented to do. Now, we do target practice in sporting events and all, but in the end, the purpose of a gun is killing. That's what they're for. So I can understand you have that ethical dilemma. But I would also say this, you have no no reason to think that just because you know someone and generally think they're an all right person that, that they wouldn't turn around and I don't know shoot somebody or shoot themselves and, and, and the truth is and this is something gun grabbers you know use as a misleading statistic and then turn around and try to use the statistic itself as a thing against guns suicide I mean the number one risk I think you would you would have in this country of selling legitimate firearm sales, in that firearm taking a life that you wish would not have been taken, is that the person one day decides life's not worth living, puts that .45 in their mouth, blows back their head off. And maybe that's what you're fearing. Maybe you know someone that it happened to, and the fact that you could be attached to it that way is unpalatable. Well, then you have to make a decision. Are you going to get over that? and say, I also might sell a gun to a guy that I don't know, that one night he might be at home and somebody breaks in his house and tries to rape his wife and kill him, and that homeowner uses that gun to defend life and property and liberty. Right? I mean, you, you, you can not carry the guns that people typically use for that and just go into you know sporting hunting rifles if you want to. There's almost no crime committed with bolt-action sporting rifles, But I think you're seriously limiting your market. So then you have to ask yourself a question. Is there some other way? If guns are your passion, and you just... Because I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. 
How can I sit here and tell somebody else that they're, that they're wrong for their moral objection to something that they're worried about? I mean, I don't, I'm not in that business. Even if we completely disagree, if you're not hurting anybody, what you're morally objection to, we have no quandary, no quarrel, until you start telling me that I have to live your way. So I can't sit here and tell you, just because if I had that license and I was in the gun business, I would sell the gun to anybody that came into my store that passed the, 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 the background check, the instant background check that, that the gun grabbers say we don't have, that every time you buy a gun, you go through it, um, and it also didn't set me off the wrong way. I'll tell you right now, if I ran a gun shop and somebody walked in and they seemed like they were not right in the head, if they, I'm sorry, I can't sell you a gun today. Why? I need you to leave. And this is what you, by the way, if you're ever in that situation, I've talked to law enforcement officers, and this is what they say you do. You don't refuse service. You deny the person the ability to be on your property. You say, you don't even say, I'm not going to sell you a gun. You say, I, I need you to leave. I need you to leave my store now. Because you can end up in some kind of a civil lawsuit. He didn't want to sell to me because I was gay. He didn't want to sell me because I was black. Or whatever. But you as a property owner always have a right to tell people to, to get off your property. Always do. And that's all you need to say. I need you to get off the property. And if I had somebody come in and that just, if my gut says, mm -mm, I'm not doing it. I said, I'm going to get hate mail. You don't really support the Second Amendment. No, I support common sense. And I support the right of any business owner to review, refuse service to any customer for any reason. I'm just telling you how to keep, do it and keep yourself out of legal trouble by not giving the doorway open. You know, I asked this person, and then, well, why didn't you serve them? I asked the person to leave, and they didn't leave. They're no longer welcome in my business. Because when I tell you to leave my property and you don't, that is a form of assault. Right? I mean, you, you have now violated my rights. As a property owner, I have a right to tell you to leave. I don't need a reason to tell you to leave. If you come to my house and I just look at you and go, I don't like your face... And say, I want you to get out of my house and leave my property now. Any police officer that shows up when you don't leave will arrest you for trespass. Because I'm completely within my rights to ask you to leave. You don't live there. I do. It's my property. It's not yours. Get out. So that's another thing that you can understand is that just because you're willing to sell guns to people you don't know doesn't mean you have to sell guns to people that you don't feel good about. But I think you should feel good about what you do. And I think you should be 100% confident in what you do or you're not going to be good at it anyway. So would you be a better gunsmith? I'll tell you right now, we need good gunsmiths. Most gunsmiths are terrible. And it's not because they do terrible work. I don't know what the hell they do. They're always broke, and they never get anything done. You give them a gun. Here, I need a simple reblue job done on this old Model 25 Winchester. Okay, I'll have it back in about nine months. Eight months later, you walk into the shop. It's laying up against a cast iron radiator rusted to it. Taxidermists do the same thing. I'm not going to go off on a rant there, but I, every taxidermist I've ever known has been dead broke and takes forever to turn around a mount. So, I mean, good gunsmiths that actually turn around shit fast? You know, I send you a rifle that needs to be tapped and drilled for scope mounts and you get it back to me in a week or less? I, I, I've had people, when I've talked about this before on the air, say, well, what you got to do is go into the gunsmith and talk to him and become his friend. You know, bring them donuts once in a while. I'm not bribing a guy to do a job that involves drilling four holes. 
Right? That's, if that's what you say you do, you should do it. So there's another thing you could do. Or look at another line of work. If you want me to tell you how to sell enough guns to make a good living and know every single person that you sell a gun to, I can't do it. And I won't lie to you and I won't piss in your boot and tell you it's raining either. It's not going to happen. It's, and it, 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 it's not even something that I think is a reasonable expectation. And even if you did, the thing that you're concerned about, I can't tell you, would go away. You could know a thousand people. You know what? Probably 10% of them are dirtbags. Because that's just how it works. And just because you know somebody doesn't mean you know somebody. So um, I can't be a lot of help in solving that problem. What, I have to t what I'm telling you to do from a business standpoint is change the business so that the problem's not there anymore. Do training, do gunsmithing, or go do something totally different, or figure out how to emotionally and mentally get past this mental block you have. Because those are your choices. And I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to help you figure out how to make yourself feel good. And that means accept these limitations and choose your path. Let's take another one. Hi, Zach. This is Rose, currently from Washington. My question is, is it better to have a basement or a passive solar house design? Details, uh, my husband and I are both military, thinking of getting land and building a passive solar design house in the next few years, but can't seem to agree on if a passive solar design with lots of porch and overhang or a nice underground basement is better. I'd uh, love to hear your opinions. Thanks. Sometimes when I'm doing call-in shows, I kind of wish I was doing the old-school radio call-in where I did have you on the air live so I could clarify some things. Because I don't know if this is like one of those, and I don't mean to sound you know chauvinistic or anything, but one of these woman things. And maybe you want the passive solar and he wants an underground home or an earth contract, contact home, and you're referring to the whole house as a basement because you disagree. Because, and I'll tell you why I'm thinking that way, I don't really understand the question the other way, which would be, should we build a passive solar home or should we build a home that has a basement? Um, trying to answer it that way in case, because that's how it sounds, like that sounds what you're asking, it may be a cost consideration that you can afford to do uh, passive solar design, but the added cost of doing that for whatever reason then mean that the budget does not allow for a basement. I love basements. I think basements are one of the, the best things you can do to a home. In general, a basement doubles your square footage under roof. Uh, it's temperature stable. It's cool in the, in the, the summer and warm in the winter. Uh, putting a, something like a, a good wood stove down in a basement with some ventilation uh, into the upper floors, you can pretty much heat a house with a wood stove from a basement, uh, especially some things that can be done, or even if you went the Paul Wheaton route with rocket mass heating that way, uh, literally heating floors or something like that. I mean, there's a lot you can do with a basement. Passive solar, what I'll give you on passive solar in a state like Washington is your winters, you have wide open blue skies. And it's, it's a good climate for passive solar to warm in the winter. 
it's a better climate for passive solar to warm in the winter than a lot of southern states where we get a massive amount of cloud cover in our coldest months. So both of those are valid things. If you mean it the first way, if I was going to build a passive solar home above ground, you know, it doesn't really look much different than a regular home, or I was going to build an earth contact structure, underground house type, it would depend on a lot of things that I can't know. But I would lean toward passive solar, and this is why. If you ever want to sell it, it's going to be much easier to get a fair appraised value on it and therefore increase your market. A lot of underground homes are considered atypical buildings, and it's very difficult to get appraisals on them, and it limits the number of buyers who can qualify for a mortgage to buy the house. So purely on an exit strategy, I'm not really big on dome homes and underground homes and things like that. I think they're fantastic for what they do, but... I think that you should always have an exit strategy, and right now the exit strategy from those homes is fundamentally limited. If we're back to the first way, and, and my granddaughter's upset about something, and, and you have to make a decision by budget between passive solar and a basement, I'd say you probably don't have to make a decision. The aspect that you point the house at and to some degree, the building materials, but more the shape of the house, the shape of the roof, everything else is going to have a lot more impact on how well it does at picking up solar radiation in the winter than anything that's really more expensive than any other house you would build. So I'm doing my best there. I really, I, I really don't presume to fully understand what you're asking me. So I would actually love to hear from you again. And I would like to know, what are you asking me? Are you calling an underground house the whole thing a basement? Um, or... Are you in a, 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 a budgetary building situation? And then once you give me that, give me some more detail about why the disagreement exists. And then I'll see what I can do. And I might even send this on to somebody like Ben Falk because he has a massive amount of experience in education when it comes to passive solar architecture. So we'll see where it goes from there. That's the best I can do. I really I, I don't I don't get how having a passive solar build would preclude the existence of a basement. I'm sorry. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Don from the Pocono Mountains of Darkest Pennsylvania, as my grandfather used to say. Question. What is your criteria for collecting roadkill? Details. You've spoken before about, you know, being Oscar Mike, pick up some sauce or that from town, and you spotted some roadkill on the side. So you grabbed it up you know, took it home and put it in the freezer or, or jerked it. But um, what's your criteria for that besides the obvious bloating, maggots, et cetera, sunken eyes? So, um, and are there any species you wouldn't pick up, such as a raccoon, because I just saw one of those, and, uh, you know, armadillo, things like that. So we'd love to hear your opinions on that, and um love to try some of that old jerk jacks ginger juice sometime, as you posted on Instagram, Instagram, rather. Anyway, thanks for all you do, you big jerk. Okay, I'm going to start out with when it comes to roadkill, the only thing that I've ever picked up and probably ever will pick up in my life that I think is even worth the effort is a big game animal, chiefly white-tailed deer. Um, when an animal the size of, let's say, a raccoon, and I've eaten some raccoons, and I think raccoons are actually a pretty good-eating critter if you prepare it right. An animal that size gets hit by a truck, I think the amount of salvageable meat left on it is going to be negligible to nothing. 
because one of the big things you end up with most of the time when you do pick up a roadkill deer is that there's a significant portion of the animal that's not salvageable. And, and your, your hope is kind of always deer gets hit in the front end. You know, they get hit in the front end, they're pretty much dead instantly. You know, they get hit in the head, four shoulders at all. You throw away that whole front shoulder side of a deer, it's not that much meat. I mean, when I shoot a deer, I always take all the meat I can get off of it. But if, if you lose the neck and the front shoulders off a deer, you've still kept the back straps, the tenderloins, the back legs, and the rump. And that's 65 70% of the total meat that will ever be there and available to you. If a deer gets hit in the hind end, I picked up one at one point that was hit in the rear end, and it looked like I was going to be okay, and I probably lost 80% of the back legs. They were just, it was just not usable the way that the meat was. It wasn't something I was comfortable taking and using and didn't think it would be very good quality. Right? The next thing I want to say before I go on with this valuation is in many states this is illegal, and in many states this has a protocol to follow. And that protocol might be you call the game warden and they come out and give you a roadkill stamp for your deer. Uh, or they give you a number over the phone or something like that. And in some states, you just pick them up. It's up to you know your local laws. And I think a law that says that a deer laying on the side of the road cannot be picked up and used as a meat harvest is a stupid law. And I personally don't believe that it falls under the constitutionality of any state in the union to make a law like that because it is the denial of the use of a public resource with no recourse otherwise. So I think a, a, like whether I agree with the law or not, I think, for instance, in Pennsylvania where they say you have to acquire a permit from the game warden, while I don't agree with I think you should just be able to pick a deer up and do whatever the hell you want. It's dead. Uh, I do think that's constitutional because they've given you a recourse with which to use that public resource. Okay? And when you just say you can't do it, well, you have a public resource going to waste and you've given no recourse for that animal to be properly used. So you do whatever you want with that information. But I will tell you this. In a state, I won't say which one, you probably figured it out, where it's quote-unquote illegal to pick up a deer, I have stopped, found a roadkill deer, had a cop stop next to me and said, well, I wasn't going to pick it up, but you're not supposed He said, grab an end. And we threw it in my truck. I have talked to game wardens in more than one state where you're not supposed to do it that said, if I'm ever forced to, I will write a citation for it. It is illegal. I've been, you know, I have one guy said, I've been a game warden 18 years. I can't say I never saw any of them get picked up anywhere, but I never wrote a citation for it. So, again, you do whatever you want with that information. There was a time I picked up roadkill deer. I had video on exactly what to look for for it. Somebody told me it was illegal where I was. I didn't know it was illegal where I was. I didn't do my due diligence. I had to take the videos down because I'm not going to put up evidence that I did something I wasn't supposed to do. But I have picked up roadkill deer. And what I would do if I wanted to find a roadkill deer and in increase my meat yield is especially on a winter night, where you're going to get some rain and stuff like that, freezing rain, a little bit of snow, I would take a drive around an area where deer usually do get hit the day before. And I would look and see, okay, there's no deer here. And then the next morning, as long as it was safe to drive, I would go out and drive around that same area. If you see a deer there, that deer could only have been there for so long. And it's cold out. That deer's safe to harvest. Now, what is it any good? It depends. If it got hit full flat on, full body by a semi, flipped up under the tires and rolled over by an 18-wheeler, but ump but ump but ump but ump bump bump bump, 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 no, it's not. 
if it was try, it was indecisive and it made that last minute decision and a pickup truck clipped the front end of it, it's probably got a lot of lot of meat available on it. When you happen by a deer, you kind of have to you look at smell, you look at you know rigor, etc. If you have an animal that's warm and it's cold out, and I'm talking body heat warm, it's recently knocked down. If it's bleeding and the blood is still liquid, it's not dried at all. It was recently killed. If it has pink foam coming out of its nose, that means some sort of damage was done into the lungs, and it's expelled pink foam. And if that foam hasn't dried, it's not very—it's not been dead very long. And I've seen animals wrecked, and I've seen animals that you could barely tell they were hit by a car. I, I picked up one. It was ended up being a button buck, and it must have gotten hit with the corner of a bumper. And I couldn't really tell where it was hit. It was fresh. It had foam from its nose. It was warm. Rigor mortis had not set in. It would have been a total waste to leave that animal where it was. When I took it home and skinned it, there was a black and blue mark about the size of a 50-cent piece high on the ribs just behind the right shoulder. That's all the marking there was. Again, it was about the size of a 50-cent piece. It looked like a giant took its thumb and thumb-punched it and made that black and blue mark. When I removed the entrails, there were three cuts into one of the lungs. It looked like somebody had taken a, a jagged knife and scraped three cuts in a row, like the gills on the outside of a shark, like kind of that shape, into the lungs. And it had bled out and hemorrhaged internally. And when, when I did further examination, what had happened is probably the corner bumper of a truck must have tapped it right there, It broke a piece of the ribs out, a sharp, shattered piece of rib, and it went through the lungs, and it, it killed it the way an arrow would, basically. And, and that animal was probably had less meat damage than any animal that I've ever harvested with bow or rifle. So it can go from one extreme to the other. I've had deer where you, you pick them up off the road, they get hit in the front end, and the front shoulders are just bloodshot to hell, But when you clean them off, the meat underneath is fine, especially for hamburger and things like that. So you always have to make that judgment call on the animal itself and you know how much damage there is and how much you're going to get, and then is it worth it? Because you might have an animal that it was it's a fresh enough hit that you could take it home and it's safe, but there's so much damage to the meat by the time you're done messing with it, you get like 5 to 10 pounds of meat. To me, that would not be worth it. Okay, so that's how I kind of evaluate that. I'm looking for the animal to exhibit signs that it was freshly killed, to not be damaged to the point where it's not a sufficient harvest of meat to be worth doing, um, and to be in a situation where it's also safe to remove. So one of the actual legitimate objections that I've heard states that make this process illegal claim is that if they let people do this, they could get out in the middle of a highway and get run over by a car. I don't think that's a, a legitimate reason to make this activity illegal, but I do think it's something like you should be responsible for yourself. And you know, a deer in the, a narrow median of a highway with a 75 mile an hour speed limit at night, with trucks blowing by at 85 miles an hour, is probably not worth it. But a lot of our side roads and things like that, or, or, or you know, highways where they're off to the side, well into the, you know, well past to where you'd be safe. I, I think that it makes a lot of sense to utilize that resource. If you want to harvest dead squirrels or muskrats or raccoons or possums or armadillos or anything like that, 
you know, God bless you, but I don't think that you're it's, you're gonna find that it's worth it. I really don't because most of those animals are going to get a, a rollover impact. That that tire is going to go over them, or they wouldn't have gotten killed. And once that happens, you're crushing a relatively small animal. And, and at that point, I don't think that you're you know you're going to have ruptured intestines and things like that, and excrement going everywhere. And you know if the animal has any kind of scent glands, all of that's gone off. And let's go ahead and take another one. I'll try to quiet things down here for you before I go on to the next one. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA. Just want to follow up on moving to uh, mobile for your internet. Uh, I switched to T-Mobile a little over a year ago. Um, one thing I liked was they did this whole big promotion, you know, $160 for four lines, all taxes and fees included. So it was none of this, you pay and you couldn't find out what the actual price was going to be. I was like, that's me. I want to know what the actual friggin' price is. The next thing that's kind of cool is they did like, you know, get a line, get a, you know, buy a line, add a second line free. And they also did like a double phone thing. But for $25 a month, I did this international, like, roaming data add-on. It turned the mobile hotspot from 10 gigs a month to unlimited hotspot. So for 25 bucks, I have an unlimited hotspot. I've got an extra free line that I leave at home, and that's now my Internet. Now, where I'm at, I don't get the greatest signal, so I average about two to four megabits. Uh, but just about 20 minutes away, still kind of in the boonies of Pennsylvania, I've hit 90 megabits download on cell signal. And that's just 4G. Um, so I suspect they may already be starting to roll out some of their uh, 5G gear now, and that may be why it's, uh, the 4G is improved as well. But for people who are looking to just drop com crap and all that stuff, uh, check out T-Mobile. They've asked about the uh, international $25 unlimited, tether, uh, unlimited tethering and mobile hotspot. And wait for when they have one of those buy one line, get a second line free, buy one phone, get a second line, a uh, second phone free. And basically, there's your house phone, your house internet, everything right there for 25 bucks a month. How do you beat that? I, I don't have a lot to, to add to that, but I think more and more is the case is that that's what you're going to see. Um, if you think about the evolution of technology as a whole, we've just had an ongoing wireless revolution. Um, when people first started to be able to get high-speed Internet into their homes, I was in structured cabling as, as my profession. I was a sales engineer for a company that did cabling for you know large office complexes and stuff like that. I might go in and put in 5,000 data drops over 10 floors or something like that. And we actually started to do a pretty brisk business uh, with higher-end homes with people that had more money than brains, you know, paying us a lot of money to put data cabling in their house. And, you know, you might go and put four or five data drops in a house and build a guy like $6,000 and they were paying for it. And there were actually companies uh, like Ortronics, uh, was, for example, one of the companies, uh, Birdtech Ortronics. So Birdtech's a cable manufacturer. Ortronics is a uh, jack and patch panel and stuff like that manufactured. And they had a whole line of product. And Nordic's uh, CDT did as well that were designed to go into homes. They, they had, I don't remember the names of them, but it was like Home Connect or something. And, and their concept was we were, we were going to go out and sell all the, the home builders because the building boom was going crazy. This is late 90s. Um, so everybody's putting in new homes, semi-customs, you know, 
uh, down here in Texas, a quarter million dollars back then would have bought you a house you can't even get your head around uh, as far as size. And, you know, we're going to have a patch panel and data closet in every house. And, and they pushed real hard to get the company I was working for at the time on board with really pushing this and dedicating a lot of our sales to it. And, and I told them, I, I'm not going to sell it because it's not going to last. Because as soon as somebody comes out with an efficient, secure wireless router, um, this idea is gone. No one's going to pay for it. Nobody's going to want it. It's not going to make any sense. We've had cordless phones in homes since the 1980s. This is, this is a dead man walking. And it, it didn't take long after that for that to be proven right. So we went to wireless networks in homes. We had the wires now coming to the house, right? Uh, as far as wires and phones, we had cordless phones in homes, but they had a limitation how far you could go and whatever. And most of you that are my age, you remember the avocado phone on the wall with the super long cord that always got twisted up before the cordless phones. And you remember probably if you're old as me or older when you couldn't even own a phone, you had to rent it from the phone company and all that stuff. But as soon as the cellular phone really took off, like, not me, Jason said, you know, you can use it as your home phone or whatever, that second line, but I don't have a home phone. I have a home phone number. There's no phone attached to it because it costs, I do have Comcast, and it costs me less to get Internet, phone, and cable than it did to get cable and Internet only. I actually save like $50 a month by having all three of them together. So we just have this box for VOIP that you can plug a phone into on my wall in there. I don't even know what the number is. They told me when I got it, I told them I didn't care. So I think that the concept of continuously reducing wire right, and cable is going to continue for damn near ever. There will always, I say always, there will probably always be some sort of, you know, there's going to be electrical connection of some kind across copper, but... There will probably always be some trunk, some backbone within networks where we go down to an optical or copper cable. But they're going to move further and further and further away from the customer premise. And, and that's what enables mobility. That's what we talk, we've talked about a lot as we've talked about this 5G thing and what that really means. But uh, I, I do want to reiterate now, as that becomes more and more the case, is, is we can send gigabits of data streaming around with no cables across secure networks. Um, Nick from Mongolia recently commented on the blog last time we talked about this that he still can't get his head around the implications that that has for the, the infiltration of a police state. And, and I have to say that to a huge degree, I agree with you. And so people that say, well, what are we going to do about it? I'm going to live my life my way. I think that no matter how much power the state attempts to gain, it is when people start to fear living their life their way that the state really gains the power. Because there's a lot of things the government would like to shut people up, up talking about. Uh, there's a lot of behaviors they would like to prevent us from doing. There's a lot of things that we do now they would prefer that we didn't do. They'd like. I mean, I really believe the goal of government is to make everything require a license so that everything is manageable and controllable. That's what government does. And like in a life form, it grows. Well, you know, there's the old thing that moss doesn't grow on a rolling stone. And it's true. If you have a stone that's rolling, you don't get any moss growth on it. And that's a lot how the state is. The state's like a moss or a vine. Mosses and vines only envelop things that stop moving. 
and go into hiding. So don't hide who you are. Don't be afraid to say that you're a pro-gun American. I mean, really. We need, and this is why I think people having the right to protest is so important. When people are afraid to speak their mind because their speech is unpopular, that's when we're in trouble. And a lot of stuff's going on lately, and I won't go into anything specific, but you can figure it out. Just remember that popular speech does not require protection. And And the people that we need to be speaking up for in their right to say what they have to say, are the ones that we most vehemently disagree with as long as they're not inciting violence. I mean, honestly, if we cannot beat people in the world of ideas, then maybe we're wrong. That's something we always need. It's like, that's why even when I covered the thing at the beginning, this uh, this uh, Q thing or whatever, uh, it, I, I don't know for 100%, because I didn't look deeply enough, because honestly it didn't interest me enough, because it just doesn't look... It doesn't look valid. But if you can prove to me it is, I'll, I'll be open to further investigation. And when somebody brings me an argument, even one that I initially vehemently disagree with, I'm going to examine it if any compelling case is made. And this is why I'm not afraid to do it. Either I will prove my... You're not going to prove me wrong. Okay? You're going to present me with information that requires me to investigate it to the point where I prove myself wrong. You don't get proven wrong, you prove yourself wrong. And I don't mean because you said you could fly and you jumped out a window and proved yourself wrong. I mean from a standpoint of investigation. No matter what you tell me about an issue, it's not going to be enough to immediately change my opinion about it because you're one source. I'm going to have to go verify it. But once you, you hit me with something that's hard enough to make me question what I thought, I'm going to go out to either prove myself right or prove myself wrong. As an independent third party against myself. Self, you believe this. This other person told you that. They didn't sound like an idiot when they did it, and they brought you a thing called fact. That fact may be actually not fact, but it's presented as fact, and it's plausible. So now you are left with, if you actually think this issue is a big enough issue to, to, to worry about, Because sometimes it's just, I don't really care. I don't, this is not important to me. The temperature of my pool is not affected, therefore I must go forth and work on my aquaponic system instead of worry about this. But when it's like, okay, this is, a, this is an issue that's important that I'm going to need to talk about and discuss intelligently, and they're presenting me with information that says I am wrong, or at least not fully right about this, then I'm going to go question that. And I think people are afraid to do it. Because they don't like the implication that, well, what does that mean if I'm wrong? What does that mean? And the more they're rooted in it. I had a guy one time defending to me the war in Afghanistan. And his full reasoning, this was hard to even accept, his full reasoning behind why he could not change his mind about it is his, his daughter's husband had died over there. And I remember saying to him as gently as I could, so because you're son-in-law died there. Whether right or wrong, no matter what the facts are, we should stay so that someone else's son or son-in-law dies there because that will happen tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And how many people die before we admit a mistake? Because that sounds a lot like Vietnam to me. And this guy was a Vietnam veteran. And I could tell when I said that to him, it hit him. He said I had to go think about it. I said, dude, that's... That's what you should do. You shouldn't change your mind because I said so. 
And that's, that's where we need to be, I think, with all things. So as long as we're doing that, back to the point I was coming off of here, as long as we're doing that, we have the ability to resist the growth and overreach of the state. It is, it, this is why I hate this new form of tribalism. You're repugnant. You're a libtard. I mean, this has got to stop. We can have differing opinions. But if we have differing facts, somebody's facts are not facts. I've had a, I had a guy, well, was a, a, a vice principal of my son's school one time. He said we had a, a, a difference of fact. And I told the man flat out, there's no such thing as, as difference of fact. We have facts and then we have opinions. We can have different opinions that we draw from the facts. But this thing, whatever it is, did or did not happen. This person, whoever they are, did or did not say something. We talk about well, what it really meant and the context and what it was said, but they either said it or they didn't. When it comes to something like right now, we got all this shit going on about the Supreme Court. It's really simple. The Constitution says what it says, and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. And 90% of what they're looking at, that's all that we should be worried about. And it should be actually really easy to pick qualified justices. But because guys, you should live in a bubble that don't give a shit about any of this stuff that everybody's fighting about. What does this say? What does that law say? What is this precedent? Okay, here's the decision. 95% of decisions that come out of the Supreme Court should be 9-0. They really should. Because it's that cut and dry. And that's the world we should all try to live in. So we kind of bookended this one. It's kind of what we open with, kind of what we close with. Hope you enjoyed it. If you like this show and the work that I do and you think it's important you want to support us, Consider becoming a member of the MSB or Member Support Brigade. If you become a member of the Member Support Brigade, you'll get a bunch of discounts, and you'll use them because they're all things that I buy because over the years, as I've put it together, I've gone out and find stuff that I buy, and I say, I like these people, and I like what they do, and I want a discount on it, and I say, well, if you give me one and my people one, then we'll buy more of your stuff. That's how it all came together. And uh, so it's stuff that if you, know, if you use two or three discounts a year, you get your 50 bucks a year back. And you'll support the show. So it's, it's a painless way. Now, the completely painless way to support our show is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go to T-S-P-A-Z.com. You can then click through and see all the deals of the day over at Amazon. Or you can click another link. It'll show you my most recent reviews. Or you can look at all the stuff, you know, uh, categorized by category like cooking and outdoors and stuff like that. Today I have a cooking item for you, kitchen gear item for you. Uh, it's an immersion blender. Uh, it doesn't sound very survivally, but remember, this is about lifestyle and lifestyle design. But the way I got one is an immersion blender, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, is basically like a stick blender. And it's like a little blade, and it's a, a, a motor. Plug it in. You stick it in like a pot. And you're making a sauce or a puree, and you blend it up. Just like putting it in a blender, but you leave it in the pot. Hence, immersion blender. You immerse the head and turn it on. Like a little bolt motor down there. And the reason we got one is we make a lot of squash soup in the fall uh, for ourselves, but we make like several gallons for the workshop that's coming up in November. And fun is not uh, ladling two to three gallons of scalding hot squash, apples, onions, and chicken broth into a Vitamix, blending it, and then making two or three other pots or bowls dirty before they go back into the first one so then it can go into whatever it's going to store in. It, it's just, it's dangerous, and I, we've been doing it for years. We use our Vitamix for it. 
And we just made a batch recently just because we wanted for ourselves. And uh, I'm like, I'm done. So I go online to Amazon, and I start looking for immersion blenders, like 9 million of them. And uh, all the ones that are really high rated that don't get an F on fake spot for liar, liar, pants on fire reviews um, are like 80 bucks. And I'm like, I want to spend 80 bucks. This is a pretty simple device. And I also hate unitaskers. So unitaskers, you buy it, it does this one thing. We make a lot of squash soup, but we make it mostly in the fall. So then this thing's going to take up space and not do anything for the rest of the year. Um, I found this one, the Oxiforin one. It does like this little egg beater thing. And it has a, a acrylic glass where you can use it to make like smoothies and stuff without pulling out the big blender. Uh, and it's got a little mini food processor deal. And you just pull the immersion blender wand off and stick it on top of this mini food processor and zip, 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 zip. It works great. Uh, you know, like I have a big food processor, but I don't want to pull out like, you know, a big, you know, one gallon size giant Cuisinart to, to make up a cup of pesto. Pesto is some good stuff, by the way. You, you want it, a little cigarette here? You, you, pesto is olive oil and Parmesan cheese and basil. That's your basic pesto. Here's a couple of variations of pesto. Replace the pine nuts. So it's pine nuts, olive oil, Parmesan cheese. Press the pine nuts with black walnut. That's one variation, really cool. Another one is replace the basil with arugula. An arugula is a chloropathy that you can grow in colder times of the year where you can't grow the basil. So that's, those are two pretty cool ways to... But like if you're doing a cup of pesto or a couple cups of salsa, you don't want to break out that big chopper. So this thing, I'll probably use the, the little Cuisinart, mini Cuisinart type thing on it more than anything else. It works great. 40 bucks. Does all that for 40 bucks, and it breaks down so that wand comes off. It all, With all the little gadgets, it takes up less space then a typical uh, immersion blender doesn't come apart. And you got that motor, you might as well turn some other things. With the reviews there, check it out. I'm really happy with it. It's got a lot of power. 2,500 reviews. 4.5 stars. And when I looked it up on FakeSpot, the product gets an A and the company gets an A. Remember, if I wouldn't spend my money on it, I don't recommend it for you. And if I wouldn't spend my money on it again, I don't recommend it for you. And uh, so this is a new product on T-Spaz. I think you'll like it. If you have need of an immersion blender, if you've been thinking about getting like a small type of uh, chopper, cutter, I think this would be a good one. And if you're on a smoothie train, you know, and you don't want to use the big blender all the time, man, this thing would work just great. And uh, that little egg beater thingy, I'm not big on doing a lot of desserts and all, so it's not a lot of it for me, but you take a little heavy cream and you hit it with that thing just a couple times, instead of turning into whipped cream, it just turns into a foam, put that in a little hollow roast coffee. It's pretty good, a little shot of bourbon in it, just saying. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day. Uh, we've been doing the, the music from this guy, Jamie Dupree, this year, and I've got a, quite a few emails from me and comments on Facebook and stuff. You guys are really digging this guy's music. Again, he plays a harp guitar. It's like a guitar with a normal guitar fret and like a big harp thing on the top with another fret of strings and then a smaller fret of strings down on the bottom. And uh, it, just amazing harmonies and all, and... He does all these covers of all these different songs. Some of them really old, some of them new, some of them like rock, some of them metal. Today's, you know, of all people, Metallica and the song The Unforgiven. And I always love this song from Metallica. It's probably my favorite Metallica song. People, I know people are like, that means you're not a real Metallica fan. I screw you. I like what I like. I don't try to please you. Anyway, so this song is hauntingly beautiful on an acoustic guitar, especially a guitar like this with a talented musician like this. And what I like about people like Jamie Dupree is not just what I've been talking about this week, how like he's gone out and made his own 
thing in music. People say, like, you, you know, it's hard to make a living in music. Well, he just said, screw that. I'm going to direct to the customer. And he's doing, I think, fairly well for himself with that model and playing his music his way. But one of the reasons I think it works is it will tell you a person that, like, if I said Metallica to you, and the first thing you think is, eh, no, I, but this song's not real heavy, and it, I don't care. That's not my music. You know, I'm a, I'm a classic rock guy, or I'm a country guy, or I'm a rap guy, or whatever. A lot of people that would maybe not typically like this song, I think would find this to be amazing music. I think some people that would, you know, maybe particularly people that are a little older, that would just say no to all of the, you know, that kind of 80s heavy metal, metal world, um, would, would listen to the song and have no idea the connection, just think it's beautiful classical music. And, and that's what I think makes great music. When you have a, someone who writes great music, it can go into different venues and different deliveries and in, play with different instruments in different ways and, and satisfy different people. And that's why I think Metallica actually put together some amazing music. I'd like to see if there's maybe some more um, Metallica covers that Jamie's done. But hope you enjoy this song. I'll be back tomorrow with the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. <laughs>